0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, 1.58 Seconds, Near-Death Experiences, and the author is Dr. Alfred Sparman. And Dr. Sparman joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor.
2: Hi, Steve. How are you? You guys out there, how are you guys doing?
1: We're doing great, and appreciate you being with us, and we're looking forward to this discussion. First of all, I just want to help everyone understand in general what your book is about. You say this, in 1.58 seconds, you use some of the struggles that you encountered as you journeyed from being a security guard to one of the best interventional cardiologists in the Caribbean. 1.58 seconds fictionally expresses the integral relationship between living and dying. Well, (laughs) that's kind of that's a mouth. I mean, that gets you thinking right there. I mean, just just the title and what you've been able to accomplish. First of all, tell us your background, doctor. Tell us, uh, you know. Yes,
2: I I was born in Guyana. This is South America, northern aspect of our northern South American native Venezuela areas. But my family migrated to New York at age five, so we had to get into different different country different culture and everything and i grew up in new york man you know growing up in new york what it is about in brooklyn flatbush avenue <laughs> but anyway i i i, I struggled through from, from early age i knew i wanted to be a doctor so 13, at age 13, when my brothers and sisters, it was eight of us, uh, would be sleeping, at, at one o'clock I'm studying. So um, I had this stuff, I knew where I wanted to go, but it, it didn't have to be a doctor, it could have been so many other things. It could have been a preacher, because I liked preaching, And it could have been, I uh, used to look at the guys, the state troopers, walk down the street with their guns to their side, (laughs) and their nice uniform and hat. I wanted to be that, too. Uh, Then, you know, after finding out that I I didn't have to study for physical chemistry and and the sciences, and I would make A-pluses, I knew that's where I had to go. So I went through all of that and went to medical school in New York. Came out real good. Did my residency. I did uh, two years of surgery, three years of medicine, and then four years of interventional cardiology after finishing medical school. So it's 17 years of studies, and then in my training, finding out that listen, man, this death and this life, man. I mean, today a guy is speaking to you, and then tomorrow he's gone. Always a question. Always want to know what happens, man. It's so fragile. Right. It looks like we're all acting, you know? Yeah. And and an insurance like, journey in itself, having patients coming to me and saying, Doc, I would have them on the operating table and doing the surgery. The heart uh, would just stop suddenly, and I have to start it heart again by going in there and touching it and, wow. and fixing arteries and stuff. And the guy said, Doc, I saw you working on me. This thing happening over yeah. and over and again. That's really? what happened. Uh, mm. People
1: just detached from their bodies, huh? De- yep, yep. Really? One lady
2: said, li- Lady oh. said, listen, I was
1: at the ceiling looking down at you, Isn't... and I saw how you hit my chest.
2: Yeah. That type of stuff, yeah.
1: yeah. I've, I've read stuff like that before, life after life experiences of people. That's, uh, it seems reality
2: reality man yes it's, uh,
1: and some people come back some don't
2: right and you exactly. wonder what is what is it why some come back and and right. some don't
1: so your so. book your book takes us into this world these near death experiences and of course because of of your profession you're thrown if you forgive me right into the heart of the matter
2: exactly yeah. exactly so right why there.
1: why call this 1.58 seconds what's the significance yeah, of the title
2: Yeah, you see what happened. The brain needs, as a matter of fact, if you deprive the brain of oxygen and nutrients for more than four minutes, you start to have irreversible brain damage. So when I thought about a book, I was thinking, well, listen, that four minutes can be, I can call the book four minutes, then I can call the book four times 60. Uh, you know, 240 seconds, all those songs, it sounds very long. So I started off thinking, TikTok, uh, uh-huh. Time Stood Still, all these names I had when I started to write the book. And at the end, I, it came upon me. Jimmy Smith was the patient I was working on, and he was he, his heart stopped. He flatlined. So when Jimmy, Jimmy flatlined, I had to work and try to get him back there in four minutes. If I didn't, then I would have had a vegetable there on the table. One point five more,
3: right. uh,
2: five eight seconds more would have made four minutes, man, and he would have been irreversible damage. But that's about it. The answer right. says how much more was left before he couldn't come back.
1: Exactly. So you were able to save his life 1.58 seconds before he died.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Got it. In other words, yeah, you got it, right? So, yeah, that's, um,
1: those are, I'm sure, decisions that have to be made in a split second, just a world that 99% of us have never ever experienced because we're not heart surgeons. Exactly, exactly. Now, the the beginning of the book, uh, your prologue, you take us into a near-death experience, very different from the operating room. Why did you go there? Tell us a little bit about that experience, too. Yeah,
2: you see, because now I'm going back because I had some of the same stuff happening to me because I try to figure out just before dying what happens and I'm sure a lot of people right now listening to me could relate to if they would have had that experience where they almost almost had it almost died and what the whole the brain is so it means it accelerates it goes at 150 miles per second and things that you normally couldn't think you think all these things in one So as a surgeon, you know, I tell you right now, man, I'm amazed. I'm still amazed at this body. I can't get this thing together. There have to be a bigger guy out there that really put this thing together. So anyway, I once I uh, in the first in the prologue, I talked about me going in. uh, I had a nice day with the family. Got in there, and somebody's in my house. Now this is
1: fiction novel, but is this based on a true experience?
2: oh yes wow oh yes it's a lot of <laughs> it is true that 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 thing really
1: happened. Well, go ahead and tell I us in, a little bit about that. Yes,
2: I got in there, and then the door was open it, I left it locked, <laughs> so I knew something was happening in there It was cold inside, went in there, had to put the wife and the kids outside, and had to get in there and then this guy was in there. And I had to, I knew the house real well in the dark, so I moved, and I that's how the nine millimeter came in. I just took it out and was ready for him. But then, you, as a doctor, what do you do?
1: Yeah, you do, I, do I do I do you, you kill when it's yeah. not your that's not your uh, that's not your way that's not your philosophy. Thank you.
2: Thank you, because what would happen? I shoot a guy, and then look at me trying to resuscitate him. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So mixed feelings, wow, <laughs> mixed emotions. But, so hesitating, I just decided. Well, listen, I'm going to fight this guy. We had a lot of that, some exchange of fists and so forth, and then he got down the fire escape, and that was that was close. So uh, and I went on to other areas because you
1: was, could have died in that one. You could have died. Could have. Yes, yeah, that easily. was probably not very smart, was it, Doctor? <laughs> oh, it
2: was not. Oh, man, it was not. Listen, I think about it. The guy, he oh. had his gun. I was just lucky.
1: Oh, my and, goodness.
2: And through the book, I have three experiences where I just got away with, in other words, why didn't I die? Right. Why?
1: Wasn't your you time, know? right?
2: Oh, man, look, another time, if you look at one of the other chapters, where it was in Brooklyn, it's called Brooklyn, and this guy, I, I went into, the, you know, you ever went to park your car and you're sitting parallel parking, and you're going to reverse back into your spot, and somebody just come and dip their car straight in there, nose in front. What do you do? Yeah, (laughs) I'm circling like four or five times around the school to park, and the fella just—I'm waiting now. The guy just moved out. The fella moved outside. So inside the park. I'm reversing, and a guy came from behind and drove his front first into that parking spot. So I came out and said, "Hey, what's the matter?" <laughs> and <laughs> fight started, man. Oh no! A fight started right there. And the next thing you know, I was looking at a gun pointed straight to oh, my
1: head. Wow. What do you do? Wow!
2: And, and and listen to this now. Click. That's what I heard. Oh I heard my the click. goodness. Uh, so, you know, those type of things, man. It's crazy. Yes. But, but in that split second, while he's pointing that gun at me, listen, I'm telling you, it took like, it, it's like five days. Yes. My brain is just thinking about the family, thinking about my mom, my sister, my girlfriend, wow. whatever is happening in my life. Everything in that split second. So, amazing experience. So, the book keeps you on edge. People say it's engaging, all kind of stuff. But I, I brought these experiences to relate to Jimmy. Because Jimmy, you now he died. Wonder what was happening to Jimmy? And you, if you read the book, you'll find out.
1: You have a chapter that deals with this out-of-body experience. Why don't you share a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Um, Jimmy, at the end of the book, Jimmy said, Doc, I want to come here a minute. I want to talk to you. And I said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, it's page 17. Let me read a little bit of that for you. Uh, 117. Do hear what Jimmy said? Uh, I'll read it quickly. Doc, come here a minute. I turn around and go back to Jimmy's bedside. Do you know I saw you work on me, he states. What do you mean, I inquired. I saw you put your left hand on my right groin and then hit me. In my chest with your fisk, he exclaimed expressively. That shit hurt, man. I looked at him speechless, trying to figure out where this conversation was going. Then he said, but Doc, I didn't see you from here, he said, pointing between us. I saw you from the ceiling. So this is what they talk about, I thought, an out-of-body experience. So he saw me from the ceiling, working on him. And how we describe it is exactly how I I normally respond to patients who would crash or code or or die suddenly. Uh, That's how I I normally take my left hand, uh, put it on their body, the lower trunk, and hit them in the chest. We call it a precordial thump. And he saw that.
1: My goodness.
2: Uh, Yeah, it was, was, was crazy. So the book... There's a second book coming out, but this one here, Engaging Man, you read it, you have to like this stuff because everybody wants to know about health, but health presented in a way that is readable or help present a way that, that everybody can understand. And then at the end of the book, there's a glossary. So any word that you don't understand um, would be explained to you and so forth. <laughs> so it's great.
1: <laughs> now, you, you say uh, one of the things you want your reader to learn from uh, your book is about Mur- Murphy's Law. Of course, we've all heard that if something can go wrong, it will. Yeah. But you also say regardless, then, of whatever obstacle you encounter, There's always a solution.
2: Always a solution. Sometimes the solution is not what we expect. But there's always a way out. And it may not be the optimal way out, but there's always a way out. You know? So um, that's how we approach things and and I think that if people approach life and think about life, always think about consequences and so forth. Always think well, listen, if this happened, what do I do? Life man, it will be a better life. People will say Better. You always have to think about that. But 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 some people say, Oh, that can't happen to me. No, no, it can. So that's how I live. I live knowing that listen man, listen, if this can happen, if this happened, what do I do? I have options. This is what I do. But it's always a way to turn. There's always a left or a right turn. Sometimes even leaving this world is still a solution <laughs> and that's something to be debated on, you know?
1: <laughs> One of the tough things that I'm sure you've dealt with it. Uh, You obviously want to save everybody, but you can't.
2: No, no, can't. Man, I I try. I try my best. And, And as a surgeon, people, yes, a heart surgeon, people will die. I have my mortality rate is extremely low. But you'll have that person who would come to you very late. And I'll give you a quick experience. A lady came to me once, and she says, "Listen, um, she came, she flew in from uh, from the United States, and she was having a vacation. Uh, she was on a cruise ship, and she came with a massive heart attack. So I said, Miss um, X, I gotta take you to the operating right now." I got it. I got to do it. I got. I like to be one step ahead, and I believe in that. You hear me using that all the time. Always want to be ahead. You always got a better chance. She says, "Oh no, I was before you know the air ambulance to come and take me and fly me back to Alabama where I can have my surgery done over there." I says, "No, it's not that. But she, this thing here, this is serious stuff." But she didn't believe it. That day, the night, the heart started to. When the heart started in a. Negative direction, Steve. It's crazy. You can't stop it. So this heart started to act up, man, and start uh, the pressure started to drop, and she started to have severe pain. And you, and and when it get to that point, you can't do anything. Most times they're gone. So she said to me, Doc, I can't bear this. Could you take me to the surgery now? I says, No. I says, it's too late. I gave her lots of fluid. This lady breathed about just 100 pounds, and she took like seven liters of fluid because she was in something called cardiogenic shock with the heart, just with really all the vessels just relaxing. I poured about a seven liters of fluid in her. couldn't bring her back. So, yes, <laughs> i tell you something right.
1: else. Right. Well, we appreciate you so much sharing your experiences and your passion and just to obviously... Experiences that we will never experience unless we're in that uh, operating room with you. Uh, The title of the book, 1.58 Seconds uh, Near-Death Experiences. Doctor, tell us how to get your book. You can get it
2: on the internet. iUniverse, Amazon, they all have it. Uh, it's 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 it's, it's, it's uh, you can you can, or it's in uh, what do you call it? What's the other where you can get it? Um, I, I what's the book that you can get? Read it on the on the on the net. Amazon. Radio. Uh, not Amazon. There's one called uh, e-books. i ah, oh, e-books. That's word I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah, e-books. It's, it's everywhere. You can get it, order that book. I think it's it's relatively cheap, but it's a wonderful experience. Listen, you have to gain from it. Some type of knowledge you'll get. A little bit of medical knowledge, everybody wants that. And it's locally here in the Caribbean, but more so, uh, they're trying to get it at the Barnes & Noble and those places. But you want this book on the net, you'll get it.
1: Thank you, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio.
2: Thank you so much, Steve, and thanks for having me.
1: That was Dr. Alfred Sparman. He is the author of his book, 1.58 Seconds, Near-Death Experiences.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not So Soccer Bomb
4: Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Doggy Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not So Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of changing the world one invention at a time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on TogiNet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and show you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor, Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on TogiNet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Healing, a Novel.
1: And the author is Francis Pergamo. And Francis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Francis. Hello. First of all, I'm going to read a few things that you have written just to set the stage for our discussion so everyone is on the same page, so to speak. Here's what you have written. The Healing is about a firefighter who is suffering from progressive multiple sclerosis and how his wife is the only one who can give him a reason to live. It is the truest kind of love story. You also say this, The Healing would appeal to a vast audience because it's about ordinary people overcoming extraordinary odds. Probably appeal more to women who enjoy stories about relationships. It's a good love story with a special appeal to caregivers. Well, it sounds like, I know in doing some of the reading and preparing for our conversation, uh, it sounds like a great story because it's a real story. It could really happen. What motivated you to do this, uh, Francis? Uh, wh- why did you go with this story theme?
5: Well, I wanted to show um, the importance of human connection in relationships, especially in this case in marriage. Um, and it's about also about friendship and parenthood. Um, and I wanted to sort of explore what happens when true love is tested. To, a, to the limit, yeah. and, and in this case, something like this progressive multiple sclerosis and the um, main character, the husband, is in a wheelchair and becoming quickly becoming a quadriplegic, and, and um, so it's really testing their marriage and the self-sacrifice and, and all of that that's entailed. And I wanted to, I also thought, what would happen if this happened to me, because I have a very good and solid marriage, and I, and I just sort of explored that.
1: Right. Mother Teresa says this, I have found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, then there is no hurt but only more love. Wow, that is so well said.
5: Yes, and that's, that pretty much sums up the premise of the, uh, of the story.
1: And your story Ritz, really hits home to me because I grew up with a family very close to our family where the wife developed multiple sclerosis, and went from a very active woman to a wheelchair. And I watched uh, the husband, my father's great friend, watched him take such good care of her. So, you know, I can relate very, very well. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this kind of uh, dilemma, so to speak.
5: Very much so. A lot of people, whether it's illness or emotional problems or... um, you know, tests come in all forms in life, and if you can get if you can get past yourself and some and pretty much think of the other. Um, it's going to, you know, it's going to work out. It's going to work out.
1: Well, it looks nice on paper. It looks easy on paper.
5: It looks exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's another great challenge on a daily basis.
5: And you need inspiration from everywhere, and it's and it's also something that crosses all lines of. Sure. time and space and sure. ethnicity and religion <laughs> that kind of wisdom can come from helping, help from a friend and help from the human connection help from faith um it, it comes from a lot of sources and it's you know it's the most important thing in maintaining a relationship
1: well let's talk about karen karen donnelly she is the wife the one of the main characters let's just get inside her mind and her heart of where she starts in this long journey, you know, this long journey of learning. Tell us about Karen before the long journey.
5: Karen. Well, the book begins with, with he's already in full fledged. Her husband is already oh, okay. in, 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 yeah, in full fledged, um, you know, in a wheelchair already. So she starts out already, sort of in mourning about this uh in a complete dilemma about you know how to handle it and feeling cheated in life and why me why me exactly and she uh, you know she's standing there at the crest of the beach where they met and Mm. and where he was a sexy lifeguard ready to go into the fire academy and he was you know he she felt like the luckiest girl in the world and in chapter six it it um Shows the chaos in their household. If something happens where he, you know, it just sort of blows up. Then she she runs back to this spot and she remembers how she met, how they met, and you get a backtrack, you get a, a flashback about what it was like and how they met and how happy they were and how young and youthful and and you know and how strong and and she's mourning that. So that's that's a you see the contrast also.
1: So we have to go through the mourning. Right, and we, but we have to get out of the morning too. We got to get beyond the morning.
5: Well, that's the whole process. That's the rest of the journey. Is is how how she is going to handle that, um, you know, and maintain this relationship. And she wants to hold on to this love. This is the love of her life. She thinks that pulling back is not showing him her pain. That she thinks that's helping him, and it and it doesn't. It doesn't help him. So, it, it, you know, really, the connection there. She has to, that's the journey. She has to learn that. She has to learn how to let him see what's inside her. Um, you know, that that's a good portion of the journey of the book and her character. Right. She deals, and she deals with a lot. She deals with a lot. She has a lot on her shoulders. The daughter, you know, has emotional problems, mostly because the, she had things in her own life happen, and the husband and her father, rather, is um, is so sick now. So and so, this Karen has a lot on her shoulders, and and how she deals with it, basically strips away a lot. Go goes very deep with the help of a friend. You um, know, I don't want to give too much sure, away about about the, no, about that's the right. book, but it, yeah, that's
1: well. That's, and then there's Mike, who is having his own struggle with who he is. I mean, he he's losing his will to live because he's no longer the man. That he once was, and so he's feeling really, really bad about himself.
5: Yes, this is, I think, so typical. Especially men in my life. This would have been the real. This would have been the real uh, test, and it was. Even as my father got older, as my father-in-law got older, I saw how when they weren't as productive, they just, you know, they lost it. They did not yes, want to now. not be productive, and right. um, that. So that happens, I think, with a lot of men in particular. Um, and it really, you know, finding the, finding the uh, meaning in your life. Why is a life worth living? What constitutes a life that's mm-hmm. worth living? That, it, it really is in our in someone making you feel that your life is worth living. So it's in the other person. It's in the human so we connection.
1: So we almost have to be a mirror to each other.
5: Exactly. That's,
1: and, and, and often we don't want to expose ourselves like that.
5: Right and in this case, she doesn 't want to expose um, she knows that it pains him to see that how he is
1: right
5: she has to find him beyond all of that. she has to see the mic that she always knew was there and that he still is there. you see so that for him as a, you know and any disabled person there's a there 's a famous um, NYPD policeman. I don't know if you've ever heard of Stephen McDonald. He was shot years ago, um, and he's a quadriplegic. And he is a spokesman for exactly what I'm talking mm. about. That wow. He 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 forgave the the youth that shot him, um, and you know, and really came out. And he's he's a spokesman for forgiveness and for all of that. And he's a quadriplegic, and he's been like this for years. Oh, good for and him. It, it, yeah, and he's famous. So that's the same type of right. you know, finding well, that-
1: worth. Well, that's why the title of the book, "The Healing." Yes. Now let's talk about this mysterious figure that Karen has seen walking around towns, and she was a little girl. The woman in black.
5: Yes, Grace Mitchell. Um, she's the. She's the. Um, she is a little bit mysterious, but yet she's very down to earth. And something draws Karen to her doorstep, basically. Once they. Do meet. Um, it's like another world to her. It's it's peaceful. She goes in. She has an old fashioned kitchen. She sits and has a cup of tea with her, and she finds she hears all of these wonderful little wisdoms. It's like basically what Grace is doing is holding up a mirror to Karen. Um, she doesn't talk about herself. She doesn't. Karen really doesn't know anything about her past. Just a little bit that she's heard, sort of from gossip. Um, but, and there, there is a little bit of a hint that, oh, maybe she's a, you know, some kind of a healer. Um, Karen doesn't know that. She has no clue about that. Uh, that's, you know, the reader sort of gets an aside on that. Um but yet, she's so down to earth. She has a, uh, the enjoyment of the garden, uh, the you know, the cup of tea, the old-fashioned hospitality, the listening. You know, she listens to her so intently, and then sort of spouts these little wisdoms of how she can handle things. Or she doesn't tell her how to handle things. She just sort of, like a therapist would, you know, sort of makes her realize it herself. Um, so she's just a, uh, becomes a very good friend to her in that regard. And she also eventually meets Mike and sort of helps when Karen is up in the air with with their daughter she helps her um she stays with Mike some some of the time
1: you write it this way you say Karen comes to enjoy her company as a troubled soul enjoys a spiritual retreat
5: yes that's that's what it is there's something otherworldly you know um about her in that way and it's it's what Karen needs at the moment.
1: Well, as you put it so well, true love always puts other before self. Now, that is easy to read. It's easy to say. Another challenge to do it on a daily basis.
5: Yes, especially with the people around us. Ancient people understood about self nothing's gained without self-sacrifice. Modern man knew it until a few generations ago, and... Now it's all about instant, you know, we want instant gratification, self-gratification. We're not, you know, thinking about what the other person needs. It's about me and not about we. And any relationship, especially marriage, has to be about we. It can't, you know, just be about self. So that's easy to say, I know, but in, in daily life when things like this sort of, when we say, why me? But you know you have to go above your go beyond yourself and think about the other. So the and
1: focus of life then let's get back to what's really important each other. Yes. I mean get that as the focus all this other stuff is going on but yes. what you're trying to tell everyone is that we've got to stay focused on our loved ones.
5: Yes. That's exactly what this is about and not to take them for granted. Because in this in a this, this story um also Brings out the fact that your, night, your life might not pan out the way you expect. Um, and at the end of it, you know, could very well lose somebody or not have the amount of time that you think, you, that you plan on having. And you can't take it for granted. You can't take anything for granted. So that's another main point, you know, in this story, is, is um, not taking the people you love for granted.
1: And the simple things in life are what matter most in the end.
5: Yes, exactly. That's, that's exactly um, the, the cup of tea with a friend or the, the ordinary. There's one part in the book where I um, mentioned that they would give anything to have an ordinary day. Mike, while well, he's thinking, because he he's, you know, basically sort of lives in his head at this point. He can't really do. He th- thinks a lot about his memories. And he just would give anything to have one of those ordinary days. And, you know, that's brought out in the story through him. It was a little difficult to, you know, put myself in his place and a lot. And I, I had to imagine what it would be like that you're sort of debilitated and, and, and living in your mind. Um, and he would give anything just to have an ordinary day. We have all these dreams and we want to go, you know, and do great things and uh, always productive, productive running. He just wants an ordinary day with his family. An ordinary day on the beach. He doesn't want to go to the beach because he doesn't want to be the guy in the wheelchair. that Goes to the beach. He's, you know, he was a lifeguard. He was a, the hot guy on the beach. You know, this was. So he just wants one of those ordinary days back, and that's what we take for granted.
1: My characters are ordinary people, but they are heroes because they meet the challenge of daily life. It's very believable. The title, "The Healing," a novel. Francis, tell us how to get your book.
5: It's available at barnesandnoble.com, iUniverse uh, Bookstore, and also on Amazon.com. And if you, um, of course, put in uh, my name, Francis Pergamo, into the search, it will come right up. And it's available on ebook as well, and hardcover and softcover.
1: Thank you, Francis. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio.
5: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles
4: and Beyond with Pete Dicks. Girlfriend It is on TuggyNet.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Dr. Guilt, Benefits of Medical Treatment Compared with Hazards, a Trade-Off, and the author is Dr. Everett Lovrien, and Dr. Lovrien joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Good morning, Steve. Well, I want to read a couple things that you have written to kind of set the stage for our discussion. Uh, you write this. Brent died at age 17 from AIDS after he became infected with HIV from medicine he used to treat hemophilia. Was the doctor that prescribed the contaminated medicine guilty of, of causing harm? Or were the drug companies that produced the medicine guilty of sacrificing safety for profitability? Well, these are obviously very serious issues here. At the same time, a rather big dilemma for a doctor like you, Doctor uh, Doctor Lovrien. Tell us a little bit about your background in this dilemma that uh, that you have wrestled with.
3: Well, I became uh, director of a clinic in Oregon that uh, serviced. Boys and men who have a bleeding disorder called hemophilia. And I was around before the uh, medicine became available, and at that time uh, there was great agony. People who have this bleed into their tissues, into their joints, it causes severe pain, leading to disability, inability to attend school, usually not marrying. And before 1960, the average, the life expectancy in hemophilia was 11 years. And so they had faced a premature death. Then this new medicine came around to restore the clotting ability of blood. And the people who took it were uh, living an almost normal life in contrast to the days in agony and so everything was sailing along very beautifully and then suddenly a dark curtain fell as we discovered the medicine was polluted with a deadly virus HIV as well as hepatitis.
1: Was it ever determined how that happened?
3: Yes it happened There are several theories, but the most plausible one is the medicine uh, was made from plasma of paid donors. The donors became HIV-infected not knowingly, and the source of HIV into the general population was a a result of another human endeavor, that is, manufacturer of the hepatitis B vaccine when they've when the uh, primates of Africa were used to harvest their kidneys to culture the virus the virus jumped a species from SIV simian immunodeficiency virus to HIV and then those that was injected into the volunteers who were using to make the vaccine for hepatitis B and that's where hepatitis that's where mm-hmm. HIV came from it's a man made disease both in the hemophilia population as well as in the homosexual population and drug users it's all man made
1: well, certainly devastating to you, doctor, having this uh, relationship with uh, Brent, uh, a young man who had uh, this hemophilia, but it seemed like there was hope. There was probably healing, right?
3: Yes, he was doing very well. He was leading a good life, and we expected his life expectancy to achieve at least 60 years.
1: But then the the... Tragic discovery.
3: Yes, a a surprising tragic discovery, a mysterious one, very confusing to us doctors as well as the rest of the population. We're trained to to remove suffering and never do harm to anyone, and yet our patients began to drop off and die from a horrendous disease that they were innocent and didn't have any other risk factors.
1: So thus the uh, personal conflict, obviously, for yourself and others in the medical field in the, and so fitting for the title, Dr. Guilt. you know, benefits of medical treatment compared with the hazard. So how have you, ha- how have you been able to work through this?
3: Well, this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, I've remained in touch. I'm retired now, but I've remained in touch with uh, quite a few of the families who lost a loved one from this. And I've... I've gone around to their homes and asked them if you consider me to be guilty of causing harm to your son. And uh, generally the reaction was that they don't consider me guilty, but they consider me to have been wrong. And they also feel that the... uh, and <clears throat> generally, some doctors were too close to the pharmaceutical manufacturers and overlooked uh, safety measures instead of uh, in favor of reta- attaining profitability. So I had to write this to clear my mind, and I feel much better now that I 've told all the people that I'm sorry for having caused harm.
1: Well, we can't even imagine uh, what you've gone through, Doctor. Certainly, uh, we salute you for this noble enterprise, uh, certainly to I mean, I'm sure not many doctors uh, follow up with patients like that. So uh, first of all, congratulations for doing that, and congratulations for writing the book.
3: Well, thank you, but you don't have to give me accolades as a physician. I'm, I'm trained to be a public service. The people who need to be acknowledged are those poor, innocent victims who died, and we shouldn't forget them. You can forget about my activities because I'm doing what I was trained to do, and that's, what I'm, that's, what I, that's fulfilling for me. I have a great, great privilege of having been a doctor. That's a wonderful experience. Not everybody can be.
1: Well, your book is it's a very extensive, it's a comprehensive, somewhat four hundred and some pages, and it goes into great detail, um, not about the disease of homophilia, but also, of course, this uh, this dilemma with the uh, treatment, having the HIV virus. Here we have the, like you have mentioned earlier, let's go a little bit more into this, this, this great conflict between finding new medicine, discoveries of utmost importance, but at the same time, the uh, part of business, uh, capitalism, free enterprise, uh, profit, profit, profitability. Of, how does that play into all this, Dr.?
3: Well, in America, we we have uh, the spirit of capitalism and free marketing, which is of great benefit, <clears throat> it leads to entrepreneurship. Most all of the important medicines in the world are invented in in America, and that is because there's profit in doing so and This medicine was designed to relieve bleeding, and it did it very well. Unfortunately, it was contaminated, but it did serve its purpose and so that there's a conflict here because the medicine could have been cleaned up and the virus removed from it although the drug companies who made the medicine said they didn't know how to remove that they it was known they just didn't know it it's been known since World War <clears> two <throat> and so we have uh, a problem in that our uh, blood supply was polluted and the government is supposed to have regulations to assure that that doesn't happen and they did tell the drug companies to clean up the medicine but they didn't do it and so we have we had regulations but they weren't enforced and the drug companies although they were acting in good faith were more hasty than they should have been they were more involved in free in selling medicine than in safety and to it to attest to that fact is after the medicine was discovered to be contaminated and it was recalled and brought back to the shelves of the drug company what did they do with it? They dumped it Did they dump it down the drain? No, they didn't. They dumped it overseas in Japan and Costa Rica, and the entire world became HIV-infected as a result. And that's that's a sad attestment to our pharmaceutical manufacturers. I'm not angry at the pharmaceutical companies, but I am angry that we didn't employ safety, which could have been done.
1: Were there lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies?
3: Yes, there have been several lawsuits, and there's a lawsuit against me also, as because I was a doctor who gave medicine and but there it ended up most of the lawsuits ended up in a large class action suit in which the families of the uh victims who died were compensated with a hundred thousand dollars uh later after their death
1: a hundred thousand dollars, which obviously is a good bit of money but Can't even begin to pay for a life.
3: That's right, but it was at least it was a gesture in the right right direction, and 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 uh, um, I believe that most of the money for the paying off those victims, because there were more than ten thousand, that most of that money came from the drug companies through the government to the beneficiaries.
1: Well, it seems to be, in my simple view, this is real simp- simplicity of <laughs> one who doesn't really understand the medical world, but there are many risks in treatment, and that is a difficult pill to swallow, so to speak, right? That's
3: right. <clears throat> all, all medicines and treatments... Uh include hazards, and you have to weigh the benefits versus the hazards. This isn't the first time that there's been uh, an unpleasant reaction to a medication. There have been others, (coughs) but but, (coughs) we need to have people critically think. One of our problems is that we are so engulfed in advertising, go see your doctor and tell him to prescribe such and such. People need to critically think rather than just absorb everything they hear in the media. Our media is overloaded with enthusiastic measures to drive people to pharmacies, and I think that's sad.
1: And those ads that we see on TV uh, seem to be running all the time. Half of the commercial is about all the benefits, and half the commercial is the disclaimer of all the risk. Absolutely. You know, you Um, go, why would I do this if all this could happen?
3: And and see, in this country, uh, as I said, we don't have cost controls, whereas they do in other countries. So that if a pill in the United States costs a dollar, and the same pill in Belgium costs ten cents, then that means that we are essentially subsidizing medicine in those other countries, and that's one of the problems with lack of cost controls, whereas there are some ways cost controls are met, such as the Veterans Administration Hospital and Kaiser uh, Health System. They don't pay those prices, and so there has to be some critical thinking done here and some recommendations made.
1: Now you keep using this phrase, critical thinking, Let's develop that a little bit more and in, in how the, the importance of this in your mind for the future.
3: Well, the importance is that we always need to examine the issues and know a lot about it and not just be blind. Although... I think it's, uh, the best way to do that is to trust your doctor. And the doctors are the closest to their patients. They know what's better for them than the pharmaceutical manufacturers do. And so they need, you need to critically a- analyze those, those messages that you get on television or read in the magazines and think about issues and not just think for an, uh, an easy solution.
1: And we need to teach young people how to critically think.
3: Absolutely. That's the, that's the source. Uh, we have to get young people issued interested in issues, including politics and medicine and ethics and science, so that they can make decisions. Science without social benefit is of no use. And so they, we need to have critical thinking about the issues in medicine as well as all the other parts of life.
1: Well, for the future, Dr. Can business and medicine coexist together for the most part? With given the way we seem to be thinking today, maybe we're not thinking very critically. Well, how do you see it? Are you hopeful?
3: Uh, yes I'm very hopeful I I meet with uh, university students <clears throat> and discuss such issues and I'm very enlightened by their interest and I think that, that pharmaceutical companies generally are good places and that they like everything else have uh, some hazards of the way they proceed at time in a race to make money and I think that has to be changed we need more regulation and and the, re- the regulation it doesn't need to just come from the government, although it should come from the government too, but we need to raise people so that they think ethically and critically so that they can be involved in these processes to serve our community better. And I think our young people can do that.
1: Self-regulation is always the best, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> and that is, you know, that is difficult because now you're challenging the individual, And they can't hide behind any big name. No,
3: that's right. But they have to learn the wonderful satisfaction out of you that you receive when you complete a good deed. Not for pay, but because you do something that's worthwhile. That's where people are really going to be gratified. And I think that our young people need to learn that.
1: Doctor, tell us how to get your book.
3: Uh, my book is available at uh, the usual outlets, including Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Amazon.com, or Barnes & Noble, as well as my website, which is drgilt.com. without the question mark, drgilt.com.
1: Well, Doctor, we appreciate you sharing uh, this very controversial, very important, very timely story. The title, Dr. Guilt? Benefits of Medical Treatment Compared with Hazards A Trade Off. And the author is Dr. Everett Lovrien. And, Doctor, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Good day.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio, radio with a cutting edge.